You're American when you go into the bathroom. You're American when you come out of the bathroom. What are you while you're in the bathroom? Some of you know this. European. A little, a little, I wasn't sure I was going to go over. Good response. Just a little joke about, uh, you know, uh, gender, or not gender, excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> identity fluidity, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I threw that second part on there because I just couldn't hold it in, right? Okay, I'm done now. All right. I don't know what, which of those jokes you got. If you got none of them, that's on me. Uh, if you got any of them, I'm still sorry because I heard that back in like third grade. And, uh, well, no, I'm not that sorry. But seriously, our identities, uh, they are fluid, right? Our identities, they change. I mean, just think about yourself. Think about who you are for a second. Who are you? Are you the same person today that you were five years ago? Ten years ago? Twenty years ago? Are you the same person this morning here in this space as you are in different circles? When you're at work, when you're at school, when you're at winter carnival, we change. We are malleable. But if you're not the same in those different circles, why the change? Who are you? Really? Well, maybe you say, you know, I'm, I'm Kevin, or I'm Dale, or I'm Judy, or I'm Daniel. But what happens when even that part of your identity is challenged, your, your core identity? When, when something in life happens and you think, well, who, who am I anymore? Not who I thought I was. Or when the world steps in and says, no, this, this is what it means to be you now. This is what it means to be Kevin. Whatever you thought before, ah, forget that. This is who you are now. Well, that's what's going on in the story this week. Uh, an identity crisis, uh, a name change. And not just for Danny and the boys, as I like to call them. See, what's happening to Danny and his friends are, that's happening on a personal level, what's happening on a macro level to the whole nation of Israel. God's people have been conquered, captured, exiled. That means that they're being deported from the home that they have known and, and lived in, and they're, they're being sent far away. They have to pack up their stuff and uh, head south, you know, across the Mackinac. To a very different land, not just lower Michigan, I'm talking the deep south. Something totally different, a whole different place. And because of that, they're having to reckon with this question. Who are you? Who are you? Because King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is on a mission to alter the identity of Israel. Which is a strategy that nations have used really throughout the ages. A nation, when it, when it conquers a people, uh, they want to, well, they want to colonize it, right? Government leaders want to colonize a people. They want to Americanize a people. They want to Babylonize a people. 
How do you do that? You take the elites from a nation and you train them up in the way that you would have them go and then you let that influence trickle down into the rest of society. Right? You, you create influencers. And that's the exact blueprint that we saw in our text today when we were hearing from uh, Daniel chapter 1. They took the royal family and the nobility and all, all the best and the brightest from the nation of Israel, and they taught them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. That's another name for Babylonians. So they taught them Babylon's literature. They taught them Babylon's uh, language. And then the king's plan was to send them back to Israel, to be delegates and ambassadors of this new Babylonian culture so that these elite leaders could go back and influence their nation in the ways of Babylon and apart from God's revealed wisdom and truth to the people. And I hope you're seeing the connections to our world today because this still happens even today. Maybe not uh, in our context as much the colonizing and, and deportation, but I mean, we even our culture today, we use that term influencer, which is derived from the word uh, to flow because you and I are liquid. We're, we're fluid. We're impressionable. You and I act differently in different circles. We shift and we change. We're formable. So what is forming you? And how have your thoughts and, and actions been influenced by our American culture? Maybe it's the way you think about romantic love. Right? Romantic love. Maybe you have this idea that, that somewhere out there in, in the world, in the universe, is your soulmate. That one person. And they're out there, and if you could just find them, oh, man, things would click. And love would just be this easy thing that came so naturally to you and this other person. You guys would meet, and you would just get each other right from the get-go. And you would know it when you found love of yours. You would know it when you found love because you would feel it deep down in your gut. Because love is a feeling, Right? Well, as we understand it culturally, it is. I mean, that's like the plot line of every American movie and song and novel. But it's not the only cultural understanding of love. Uh, there's another picture of love as a kind of uh, long-suffering commitment to a person that, that manifests itself in acts of devotion and service and care even when you don't feel like it. That's a different picture of love. It's the biblical one. Which view of love is yours? Which, which culture has been influencing you? You might also take, for example, uh, the effect of convenience, right? A value in our culture today. You know, we live in a day and an age in a culture where uh, you can have pretty much anything on demand. Miss that Olympic event? 
I'll just pop onto YouTube and search it. It's probably been uploaded by now, right? You hungry for some food? Go over to the, ne- the nearest fast food joint, right? Utter a couple words. Minutes later, hot food right in your hands, right? You need new boots? Amazon Prime. One click, new boots right to your doorstep in two days. If you live anywhere other than here, right? For us, it's like four days or five days. How long is it going to take? Come on. Gosh, my feet are cold. And this isn't wrong. Let me make that clear. Like, this, this isn't wrong. It's just a part of our culture, right? It's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. But what happens when we start applying this convenience culture to our relationships, to the church, to Jesus? Yeah, you know, church is great when I need it, but uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a busy guy. I got a lot going on. And, you know, hey, I can always just go back and catch up on the sermons in the archive, right? But then the community gets neglected. And the power of gathering in a space and the support that we get from each other when we actually hear one another praising God and and confessing our faith in unison. And then there's that more terrifying reality that you can't really call Jesus your Lord if it's a convenience. Because that's not lordship. That's Netflix. So what are we to do? Escape the culture? Kind of enclave away from it and, and, and just fight it off? Battle it to the death? There are people who try to do that. But the irony is it usually leads to its own kind of culture. Usually one that's kind of steeped in judgment. And you've probably seen it somewhere in the comments section on any social media page, right? Someone who is getting way up on their high horse, right? And they're condemning and judging not just that cultural thing that they've recognized, but, but the people as well who have been duped by it, right? They're a little higher and loftier because they can see this thing for what it is, and, and everybody else is just, you know, sheeple. See, it's... When you, when you are able to step back and see what's going on in a culture and maybe even save yourself from kind of this cultural blindness, it's really, really hard to not let that puff up your own ego and feel just a little more worthy, a little more righteous than everybody else who's just been suckered in. And so it creates kind of a judgment culture Uh, at its best, and honestly, kind of a hateful, spiteful culture at its worst. This actually happens in the story. I have a story up here. Uh, We didn't hear about it in our text. We actually don't hear about it in here either, so I don't know why I have this prop. Uh, But we do hear about it in Scripture. In this same time that's going on with Daniel, uh, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, we learn about a prophet named Hananiah. He's not one of Daniel's friends. Hananiah, I guess, was a popular name. Actually, we got a son uh, coming up. Hananiah, we can throw that on the... uh, Never mind. Um, There's a prophet, Hananiah, 
And he's saying to the people who are being cast off into exile, he's saying to them, stay out of the city. Don't go in. Whatever you do, stay out of the city. He says, pray, pray against the city. Pray that God will judge the city. Pray that he'll tear it down and that he'll restore us back to strength. That he'll, he'll visit us and bring us to power and, and, and just have nothing to do with them. Because Hananiah was afraid of what might happen if they went into the city, that they might get shaped by the city. And that was a real fear and a fair one. But God had a different plan for his people, and maybe an unexpected one. God says through a different prophet who's named Jeremiah, love the city. Love the city. In Jeremiah 29, God says, settle into the land to which I'm bringing you. Build houses, find wives, don't distance yourself from these people, but actually seek the prosperity and the peace of this, this nation, this town that I am bringing you into. I'm carrying you there. Invest in it. Do good work in it. Pray for it. God says, love the city. Love the city like I've loved you. Are you afraid that you're going to assimilate to it? Well, then just remember me. Remember whose you are. Remember that I, I've called you out of the nations to be a holy people, a people that stands out and live and really thrive by these good rules and ways that I am giving you and not the crooked ways of the world. It says, remember who you are, but don't forget the mission, right? The mission that that all families of the world should be blessed, blessed through you. It's hard to bless them at a distance. It says, get in there. Remember my plan. Don't you see, I've, I'm the one that's carried you here to actually uh, refine you and to grow you and to renew you, but also to, to renew them and to refine them and to get my word, which you have, into their world says, I refuse to let you believe that there's only two choices, to assimilate or to segregate. God says there's a middle road. He says there's a narrow road. And he wants us on it for our sake and for theirs. And this is what we see Daniel do in his life. Daniel doesn't revolt against his Babylonian overlords, He doesn't stay isolated with his church buddies and refuse to hang out with the non-Christians. He doesn't even condemn their literature or their science or their education. He actually studies them. He learns from them, and actually he becomes top of his class. I mean, he rigorously studies their texts uh, so that he becomes the best, even in these, these pagan arts. But he doesn't assimilate to the people. He doesn't abandon his identity, his godly wisdom. And time and time again, when when the cultural pressures come into conflict with with his faith and his God, he takes a stand. He doesn't judge or vilify the culture, but he doesn't budge either. 
not when his back's against the ropes. Like in chapter 2 of Daniel, when he's got to go interpret a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody's lives on the line, and he's had this education, but he doesn't just go to the, the Babylonian texts and, and put all his, his eggs in that basket. He says, wait a minute, I remember this little trick from, from when I was a kid. I can pray a simple prayer and ask someone who knows all things to reveal to me this thing. And God delivers. In chapter 3 of Daniel, it's not Daniel, but his friends who are caught in this position because the king has erected a golden statue of himself and says, bow down to me. It says, this is the thing that you really need to be concerned with in your life. You really need to care about this thing. And his friends don't say, well, you know, when in Babylon, everybody else is doing it. They, they stand firm, and they stand out, and there's a, there's a cost to pay for that, and they do pay it. And Daniel pays it too in chapter 6, when in the same vein as his friends, he stands up to a culture that has become so hostile to his faith, it's going to cost him his life. But he knows that that price to pay is, is a better price than the price you have to pay if you conform to the patterns of this world. Because I'm not willing to pay that price. I'll pay this one. So he doesn't assimilate. He doesn't call out or condemn the culture either. He just worships. And then he walks right into the lion's den. And I read Daniel and I think, how on earth? I mean, really? Like, my life is pretty, pretty comfortable. I'm not... I'm not ready to go into the lion's den. How could he, how could Daniel have that much, that much faith and confidence to walk into this, this lion's den? But he knew his name. He knew his identity. Daniel. El meaning God. Dan meaning to judge. God is my judge. That was his name. God is my judge, and he's going to hold me accountable if I assimilate, and he's going to hold me accountable if I segregate. But he's also going to be there for me. If I lean on him, he is going to support me, and he is going to walk with me through the fire, which is something Daniel knew from reading Jeremiah. He knew his name. And so even when the culture tried to rename him, and tell him what he should really care about with his life, right? They call them Belteshazzar. Bel is a Babylonian god. Daniel said, okay, <laughs> you can call me that, but I know who I really am because I know whose I am. I know who I am because I know whose I am. And you know whose you are too in a way even more powerful and more profound than Daniel. Because Daniel lived in a time when there was a lot of questions. I mean, people really did not know where they, they stood with God. They were being sent into exile as punishment for their behavior towards God. 
they weren't sure if they were going to be brought back. And you had prophets saying two different things. Who could you trust? Whose voice? But you live in a time, a time after, a time when you can look back on another person who was exiled, who traveled far from his home. And he was someone with two names, too, and two natures. Son of God, Son of Man. And he walked the ultimate middle road for you. He, he didn't stay in his territory. He didn't segregate. No, he came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. He, he became one of us. He joined in this human rat race. <laughs> but he didn't assimilate. He was tempted, just like you and I are. In every way, he was tempted, but he never caved, not once, because he knew his identity. He knew that he had complete support from the Father. He didn't care about impressing anyone. He knew who he was, because he knew his name. But he also didn't segregate. He didn't just become one of us. He he identified as one of us in his baptism. Why was Jesus baptized? That was something sinners did, right? To be cleansed and clean from, from the wrongs they had done. Jesus was baptized not because he had sinned. He knew no sin. He was baptized because he identified with us. He, he took our sin upon himself. He was made to be sin on the cross. And at the empty tomb, he bore our load. He, he took our punishment for how we lived toward God. He, he was forgotten by God for all the times that you and I have just up and walked away from our identity in God. All the times we had forsaken him. And Jesus did that gladly. He did that willingly for you because he wanted you to know your identity. Jesus knew his with the Father. He'd known it from eternity. He knew that love and he wanted you to know it. So he took that upon himself so that you could know who you are, so that you could walk confidently like Daniel in a world that is going to challenge you. When you step outside these walls, you're, you're swimming again. And the culture is going to want to change you and shape you. Jesus died so that you could walk into it, not just enclave and, and have my holy huddle, but to, but to actually walk confidently into it, sober-minded, but by, by no means a stick in the mud. I mean, God actually wants people to like you <laughs> because he wants you to be able to show his love to them. Remember, this is his plan. All families of the earth blessed by even us. So get in there. Mix it up with people outside of, of your bubble, outside of your church. I hope you guys have non-Christian friends. I really do. They need you. But not because you're better than them. Not because I'm better than them. They need you because you know whose you are. 
and they need to know whose they are. How are you going to do that and not just change and, and shape shift like that transformer immediately, you know? Socrates said, know thyself. And he was a pretty wise guy. I think there's wisdom in that. Daniel knew himself because he knew his creator. He knew who had made him. He knew the guy who knew more about him than he did. And I mean, honestly, I don't think we all know that much about ourselves. And maybe we're afraid to learn about ourselves. I think there's a, there's a real healthy uh, kind of fear for what we might find if we learn more about ourselves. But if you want to have complete confidence in who you are and to walk in this world with grace, not above others, but in line with others and with humility, like Daniel, you got to get to know your Creator. Do what Daniel did. Worship Him. Pray to Him. Talk to Him. And know your name. This is Jesus' prayer to you in John 17. We heard it in our gospel reading. He said to his father, Father, keep them in your name. That's identity. That's who you are. So know who you are. God is my judge, and Jesus is my advocate. Amen.